Acts 16, 35 through 40. I know Dan is going to pray again. Soren has prayed. And, but this is a house of prayer, so we're going to pray again. <laughs> we're going to pray for the Word of God to have its impact in our hearts as we read this. Lord, before we come to your Word, we, like Daniel, want to wait on you. We, like David, want to say, Lord, Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, we want to tremble at your word. Father, we pray this morning as we read it, even now the Holy Spirit would begin his work of teaching in our hearts. Even before Dan comes and opens up this passage to us, we ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, and to open our understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 16, 35 through 40. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. Paul and Silas were in jail. They'd been beaten in stocks. The jailer took them home and washed their stripes. And when it was day, the magistrate sent officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now they're to depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and they pleaded with them and brought them out, and they asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Josh, I didn't bring a clicker. Can you set that verse up there for me? With that picture? This is a message that's going to be on these six verses that Patrick just read for us, but it touches on all of chapter 16 and even into chapter 17. I want you to be aware of that. What, what I'm going to be talking about today touches on all of that a little bit. And it touches on even our, even our lives in the world today. Our, our highlight verse for today is Matthew 5.14. In, in that verse, Jesus says, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We saw that, didn't we? Just in that, in that missions moment that Soren shared with us, here is this man who was miraculously saved, and what is he doing? He's going out and planting churches. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. The church is that city set on a hill as it follows Jesus Christ. We reflect His glory to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you just look at these verses with me briefly, again, I want to point out some things that maybe you've noticed them as Patrick read them so well for us. In verse 35, the, verse, the, point of, the part of that verse that stands out is release those men, right? The, the word comes and it's authoritative. Release those men. Let them go. And in verse 36, there's the jailer. And imagine his excitement. He has just trusted Jesus as his Savior. Just that night before, him and his whole household have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he must have, it says he is full of joy, and he must have this excitement about him. The pressure is off. Paul and Silas, you're free to go. And that's what he says. Now go in peace. That stands out. And then verse 37, what stands out there? No, indeed. Paul's response to release those men and the jailer coming and saying, you guys are free to go is, no, we're not doing it. And he gives reasons why. And then in verse 37, he says, what they've done to us in public, now they're trying to let us go in secret, in private. This can't stand, right? That's what stands out in that verse. And then in verse 38, the policemen come and report this to the chief magistrates to those that are in authority. And what happens? The tables are completely turned. Those in authority that had authority over Paul and Silas just the day before, authority to see them beaten and bloodied and imprisoned and put in stocks and spend that painful night, now are afraid, very afraid. They've beaten Roman citizens. That's something that ought not to be done. And so in verse 39, what stands out there? They come and appeal to them. They try to appease them. They beg them to leave the city. And then in verse 40, we see the church meeting together. That's the summation of these six verses. Hey, and We're going to be looking at these six verses with regard to the church's position in the world in a few minutes, okay? The church's position in the world. Now, there's something I want us to think about. I like to ask questions sometimes at the beginning of a message, and this is one of those. I want to ask this question. It's to each and every one that can hear my voice this morning. What governs your life? This is, this is a sincere question. I'm asking you to answer, answer it honestly to yourself. What governs your life? What governs my life? The Word of God. Praise the Lord. The Word of God. William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania, <laughs> um, the first governor of Pennsylvania, I think he served as governor for almost 40 years. William Penn was a very avid writer, and I don't know if we would agree with everything doctrinally with regard to what William Penn wrote, but he did write something that is very poignant. He wrote this, Men must choose to be governed by God. Men must choose to be governed by God. The Word of God is how we're governed by God, right? Men must choose to be governed by God, or they condemn themselves to be ruled by tyrants. What a true statement. Men must choose to be governed by God, or they condemn themselves to be governed by tyrants. And I want to add to that, even if the tyrant is yourself, 
Because most of us, our rule, are governed by that tyrant. We are the tyrant that governs us. I shouldn't say most of us, maybe many of us. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from God being our governor, there is a tyrant that will govern us. In our text today, not only are those things there that we just went through and I pointed out or that we looked at or that maybe you saw just in your own reading, there are some other things that are, that are prominent. There are two cities represented here. There's the city of Philippi represented here. And there's the city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. There's two cities represented. And there's two citizenships. Paul and Silas are, Paul and Silas are citizens of Rome, and that is obviously no small thing. The fact that they are citizens of Rome has caused these magistrates to be freaked out. We just whooped up on some citizens of Rome. We got a problem. It's no small thing. But there's also this fact that they are citizens of heaven. They are citizens of heaven. And if you're a believer here today, you are a citizen of somewhere here on earth, but you are a citizen of heaven, and that citizenship is more important, eh? And you're a resident of some city somewhere or some town or some place, some community. But you are a member of that city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And there are two centers of authority here. The magistrates represent Roman authority. And then there's God's ultimate authority that is represented here. And then there are these two perspectives on the church's position in the world. And that's the thrust of my message this morning, the church's position in the world. There are two perspectives on the church's position in the world. This is a message about the church's position in the world, not a message about the condition of the church. This is not a message about the condition. I, I want to make that point. The condition of the church is something that everyone has an opinion about. How is the church today, right? This is a message about the position of the church, something that we don't need to have an opinion about. We can look to the Word of God and consider the position of the church in the world today. What is our position? Well, to do that, I want to first acknowledge that the church is in the world. <laughs> that is our position, objectively speaking. This, this Bible is taking up a place here on this pulpit, right? It's where it's placed. The church is placed in the world. And in that sense, the church is positioned right where the Lord wants it to be. That is not a small thing. That's not a small point. The church is positioned right where the Lord wants it to be. It's positioned in the world. In John 17, 15, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. I love reading that. In John 17, 15, he prays for those disciples that are there with him. And he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What a wonderful statement. Jesus goes on to pray for you and me. When I read that prayer, Jesus starts to pray for not only these disciples that are with him, but for those who will believe in him through their message. That's me. That's Dan. Trust that's you this morning. Jesus prayed for me there. Before going to the garden, before going to the cross, before rising from the dead, Jesus prayed for me. 
I pray not only for them, but for those who will believe on me through their message. And you get to chapter 17, verse 23, he says this, that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. A city set on a hill. We are residents of that city. We're looking at, in Acts 16, we've been looking at over the course of a few weeks now, the birth of the church at Philippi. It's, it's a real place. Well, we saw some pictures of that place a few weeks ago. And Paul is going to write a letter to these Philippian believers sometime later. And in that letter in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, he says this, Do all things without murmurings or disputings, that you may be blameless and pure, sons of God, without fault. In the midst, in the midst, God has placed the church in the midst of a crooked and perverse age. What's our position in the world? We are in the world. He goes on to say, in the midst of a crooked and perverse age, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Now, all of that is to say that for now, the church's position in the world is right where God has intended it to be. But there are some other ways that we can consider the church's position in the world, and that's what I want to talk about from this text. Other ways that we can think about this, the position of the church in the world today. Now, these events that we're looking at, Acts 16, 35 through 40, um, Patrick mentioned them in his reading. When he got done with verse 35, he backed us up a little bit and let us know that Paul and Silas were locked in stocks for the night. And that, that took place because, really, if you go back far enough, Paul had it, was, had it in his heart, and he set out to check on the condition of some churches. And if you go back even farther than that, you see that, God, that, that it began with the gospel extending beyond Jerusalem. Israel had rejected their king, and that wasn't the first time. It was a pattern. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, uh, Israel says that it, the nation of Israel says, we want a king, and God says to Samuel, let them have the king. Samuel, don't worry about it. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, their true king. In Isaiah 3, 8, Isaiah writes that they have not rebelled against or that they have rebelled against his glorious presence, rather. They have rebelled against his glorious presence. And in John 1, John chapter 1, John writes, He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many, but to those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he has given them the right to become children of God. And then in Acts 13, 46, Paul has gone to Antioch, Pisidia, City in Antioch, I don't know how to say that right exactly, which way. But he says, he says to some guys there, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, they, they rejected their king, and we're no different. We're no different prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You read Romans chapter 1, and, and it, just, it, just, it just states it plainly, hey? In Romans chapter 1, That verse was on my mind a minute ago, and I lost it. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now I know that it was true for me prior to coming to faith in Christ. I didn't honor God as God nor give thanks to Him. My thanks to Him was, I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't, it wasn't like it is now that I have the Holy Spirit, now that I've been saved. So we're no different. That kind of ties in what I ask, what governs your life? Men, men must choose to be governed by God or they condemn themselves to be ruled by tyrants. But what has set these events in motion in the context here is that Paul had set out to check on the condition of some churches and then God directed them into Macedonia by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ at Philippi. And then Lydia and her household get saved and this girl that has this maybe demon possession and she's fortune telling and stuff, she gets rescued from that and I think she got saved as well. That might be up for debate, but I think so. I think we'll see her in heaven. And this jailer and his household get saved because there's an earthquake and Paul doesn't just run away, they're there. And prior to that, Paul and Silas are sitting there in stocks after being beaten and what are they doing? They're praying and praising God. They're not, oh, woe is me. Oh, it's so bad. It's so awful. Everyone. They're not doing that. They're praying and they're praising God. From that place, from that position. I said there are, I have said, maybe I didn't, there are, in this text, there are two perspectives on the position of the church in the world. I want to say that there are. And both of these perspectives still exist today. There is the perspective of the world with regard to the position of the church in the world. And there's God's view of that, right? The world's view regarding the position of the church in the world might range from a novelty to a nuisance, right? That's the position of the church in the world as the world sees the church. It's, it goes from, it's a novelty to a nuisance. If you hear about... Um, the great revivals that took place over in Europe and England and other places, you think, wow, what wonderful things happen. And revivals, I think Patrick was talking about one that took place in Ireland. And now the church there is almost completely gone. I might get it wrong, and Patrick, you'll correct me, but I think you said it was less than 1% Christian in Ireland. Imagine that. It's become a novelty or a nuisance. And that is expressed through just maybe tolerance. The world tolerates the church all the way to torture, tortures the church. From God's view, the biblical view of the church, though, the church's position in the midst of, for his purposes. What a contrast, hey, of ideas. From the world's view, the church is this, from God's view, the church is this. It's a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. What a contrast. There is a third perspective on the position of the church in the world, and that might be our own perspective, right? So the goal of this message is to get our perspective in line with God's perspective on the church with regard to our position as the church in the world. And our view might be too often like this. It might seem like the world the world has the church on its heels. Okay? You know what it is being on your heels. I think it's a boxing term. 
on your heels. It might seem from our view that the world has the church on its heels. You could come up with some other metaphors. I tried to come up with a few. We're always backpedaling, playing second fiddle, maybe fifth fiddle. I'm not a band guy. We're not allowed to be seated. That might be too often our view. We've established that the church is positioned in the world. There are three other aspects of the church's position in the world that I want to talk about today. And I thought I should define the word position, what I mean by that, and the dictionary provided just fine. It's the area occupied by an object, positionally. The church is in the world, the appropriate place, the right place. It could be an official status, that's your position. And then there's this, position as to a situation that confers advantage or preference. I'm talking about the position of the church in the world, and that's the definition I'm going off of now. Okay? A situation or a position that confers advantage or preference. That's what I want to talk about. We're positioned or we're situated for advantage as the church in the midst of the world in three ways that I want to share with you this morning. And the first one is this. It's an area that is often occupied by the church. Thankfully, it's not always occupied, but often occupied. And that's the area of mistreatment. Mistreatment, persecution. This is a position that is occupied by the church in the world. And that can range from marginalization to being maligned with words to mar all the way to martyrdom and everywhere in between in that spectrum of things, right? That's the church's position in the world. Verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrate sent sergeants saying, Let those men go. When it was daylight, it was a brand new day, the sun's coming up early in the morning. I see this as mistreatment by marginalization. This is marginalizing the church and its message. Now, I'm saying the church. I'm using Paul and Silas as representatives of the church. You know, they're not acting just on their own. The church at Antioch has sent them out. They are missionaries sent out from a church. They're representatives of the church. And Paul is an apostle to the church. From the world's perspective, verse 35, and when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. From the world's perspective, and these magistrates would represent the world, the church here is relegated to an unimportant or powerless position within society. It was a big threat last night. But we locked them in those stocks, and we whooped that threat right out of them, guys. They got, they got no power. They're done. It's over. It was a big uproar last night, but we taught them, guys. That's the world's perspective. Yesterday, it was rough treatment, humiliation, and beatings, and putting them in maximum security. But morning comes, and they've made their point. They've crushed whatever threat from Paul and Silas was there. Whatever customs they were advocating that Romans couldn't accept or practice, we've done away with that. And while that was the thought of the magistrates, Paul and Silas found themselves in the place of, or the position of, praise and prayer. 
These magistrates might have been saying to one another, well, that'll teach them. Or, or, or maybe they'd be thinking, hey, we got to let these guys go. We ain't got time to deal with this. There was an earthquake last night. We got cleanup. We got cleanup efforts to take care of. Maybe it was the earthquake. Maybe their conscience got to them. Or maybe something else. We don't know, really. But we do know that the day before, they didn't take the time to find out exactly what was going on. They just beat them hastily. They were dragged before everyone in the marketplace, publicly. And the magistrate said, whoa, what's going on? Okay, beat those guys. It doesn't even seem like they gave them time to talk. Okay? This was a rush job. Now it's a new day, and it's time to move on, get back to the business as usual. If we do that, we'll marginalize the message by marginalizing the messengers. We've done that. We've accomplished the goal. That's the world's view here with regard to mistreatment that comes, by, that comes on the church. Whatever these men are promoting, it's contrary to our customs. Being Romans, they say in verse 21, we being Romans, we can't, we can't deal with this. We're not allowed to do this. We can't practice things in this way. Being Romans. Rome is the world's superpower. It's the world's superpower. And they're saying we cannot relate to what these men are saying. It interferes with our customs, our traditions. People will strongly oppose the glorious gospel to protect their own customs and traditions. Haven't you found that to be true? I have. People will strongly oppose, these are my own words, the glorious gospel to protect their own customs and traditions. The whole city was willing to protect the honor of Rome, but unwilling to honor God. The whole city joined in. Yesterday, there was a public show of force or enforcement. Today, we're going to let them slip away. From the perspective of the world, the church, as represented by Paul and Silas, is just a few more pawns in their political plans. That's it. That's the church. From God's perspective, from God's perspective, this mistreatment by the world positioned Paul and Silas right where they needed to be. Think about that. From God's perspective, this mistreatment of Paul and Silas positioned them right where they needed to be. This jailer doesn't get saved if they're not in jail. This jailer doesn't get saved if Paul and Silas don't endure those beatings. A city... Set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Sorry for the emotions. I'm thinking about some people that have endured some difficult things for the sake of the gospel. From God's perspective, this mistreatment by the world positioned them right where they needed to be. The Macedonian call was, come over here and help us. And that's what Paul and Silas were engaged in. From God's perspective, this is the bride of Christ. From the world's perspective, this is just some goofballs. We don't even know what they're talking about, and we don't care. We just want them out of our town. 
But from God's perspective, this is the bride of Christ. I, I use that uh, definition for position. A position, a situation that confers advantage or preference. What advantage comes from mistreatment? What advantage comes from that? From enduring that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, hey? Verse 25 says, Moses chose instead to suffer mistreatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Mistreatment, persecution, works things in us, and it works things out of us, and it works things through us, and it works things for us. There is an advantage to it. As remarkable as that might sound, it works things in us, it works things out of us, it works things through us, and it works things for us. And I could give you scriptures to back up all those claims I just made, but I, we don't have time to go through each one of them. I just have a couple here. One. Because the position of the church in the world is often one of mistreatment. Foolishness would be what that would be seen from the world's perspective. The world would say, maybe we deserve it. Maybe, we, maybe, they, maybe those guys deserve it. And the maybe there is just enough to keep that message away from me. Maybe they deserved it. And that maybe is just enough for me to say, I don't have to listen to anything they're saying. From God's perspective, 2 Corinthians 4.17 Paul writes, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us, working for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Works for us. There's, again, there's a lot more verses that speak to that. I thought of James uh, chapter 1. Um, James talks about various trials. And in, in in those and those, and those trials bring about perseverance, and perseverance must complete its full work so that we might be mature, not lacking anything. Various trials cause that. It works things in us, out of us, and through us, and for us. Because we are placed, we are a city on a hill, placed in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation or age. This is what our position is also. It's one of mistreatment. Our position in the world is one of mistreatment. We ought not to be surprised by that. It shouldn't throw us overboard. Could you imagine if Paul and Silas were thrown in that prison? How would this read today? They're thrown in prison and they're saying, oh my goodness, we're done, it's over. Everyone hates us. We better start a political movement. We better do X. I don't know. Fill in the blank other than what you see them doing. Praying and praising. This reads completely different, doesn't it? The jailer doesn't get saved, does he? Hmm? They did not sleep. Thank you for that, Maria. 
They did not sleep. And maybe, maybe, and that's our perspective. How do we handle mistreatment? How do we handle trials that come our way? That's, that's the question here, right? How do I do that? Sometimes good, sometimes not. But do I recognize that God has allowed this to come my way? So what is he doing in it or through it or in me? Or what is he trying to work out of me? In what way is he trying to mold me into the image of Christ? And Paul and Silas, they're bound, but they're free, hey? Everyone else is walking around free, free, just going about their business. Paul and Silas are bound in them stocks, but they're truly free, truly free. That's the position of the church in the world today. We are truly free even when bound. Even when bound. So mistreatment is, is really nothing to us. It's nothing. We are truly free. We are free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. We are free from the power of sin. We are free from the fear of man, free from the fear of death, free from the fear of things present or things future, free to live unto righteousness, free to enjoy being governed by God. We are free to enjoy being governed by God, even when there's mistreatment. What is the position of the church in the world today? It's one of mistreatment. God's Word tells us all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you haven't been yet, give it time. It'll happen in some way or another, in some form or another. Do you recognize it as God's hand giving you an opportunity to be this city set on a hill that cannot be hidden? Another position of the church in the world, moving on to the second position of the church in the world that I see in this text, and that's in verses 36 through 39. And I've termed this the church militant. That's the position of the church in the world. It is militant. Now, I know that sounds aggressive, and it's intended to, right? It's militant because of the message we have to proclaim and the life we want to maintain. The church is militant. Militant means combative, to be engaged in warfare or combat. The church militant is not original with me. It's a term acknowledging that the church is engaged in combat, in constant warfare, almost all of the time. Almost all of the time. We are engaged in combat. And, and, And our warfare isn't against flesh and blood, is it? We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. We're engaged in it almost all of the time. Two statements from this text I want to draw your attention to is verse 35, release those men, and Paul in verse 37, no, indeed, or nay, verily. But let them come out, let them come themselves and bring us out. They were free to go. But there's a, there's a militant nature to this. No. <laughs> no, we're not going to go. And, and there's a reason. It's not just militant to be militant, right? I want to be careful here. The church isn't to be, mil- to be militant just for the sake of being militant. If we suffer for doing wrong, then we're suffering because we're doing wrong. But if we suffer for the name of Christ, that's something different. And we bear up under it. 
The difference here, because Paul could have said when they were beating him yesterday, I'm a Roman citizen. He probably could have got that blurted out. But the difference today is between an honorable or a dishonorable discharge. A military man would understand that. Um, And the implications extend beyond the lives of Paul and Silas. Think of the disadvantage or advantage with regard to the church that they're going to leave behind. eh? The church would be there. Lydia, her household, maybe this slave girl, the jailer, his household, and whoever else maybe that has come to faith in Christ in this little short time. However many people that would be. The church would be there seen following these guys that were kicked out of town. Beaten and kicked out of town. They say, no, we're not. You're not. You beat us publicly. You're not going to dismiss us secretly. No, we want a formal release. We want a formal release. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the message that we're proclaiming. It's for the sake of the church we're leaving behind. Paul isn't going to just say, okay, thanks, I guess we'll go away now. The difference is between the potential of discrediting the message by treating the messengers as less than credible and a formal recognition of an overzealous resistance to the message and the messengers gives credibility to that message. Scripture tells us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And that's what we ought to strive for. But it doesn't always depend on us, does it? It doesn't always depend on us. Sometimes we have to claim our rights. Paul does that for the purpose of the gospel, not for self-preservation. He doesn't do that. But for the purpose of the gospel, he claims his rights as a Roman citizen. Something else with regard to this. The church is militant here in this way. There is an inevitability, there is an inevitability of conflict, isn't there? The gospel message comes into a culture to people who are set in their ways with patterns and customs and pecking orders. And as it sets people free, truly free, those who are accustomed to be gov- who are accustomed to be in being governed by tyrants have a difficulty understanding those governed by God. There is an inevitability to conflict. It's it's an unavoidable collision between two kingdoms. It's unavoidable. If that collision isn't happening, maybe we're not being the city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Maybe we're hiding that light under a basket, eh? The church here, as represented by Paul and Silas, is seen as unapologetic. They don't say, sorry for yesterday, sorry for freeing that slave girl, sorry for proclaiming the gospel, which is contrary to what you believe. They don't do any of that. They don't backtrack. They are unapologetic. They are unwavering and they are undaunted by the beating they've taken. They are undaunted by the beating they've taken. They stay focused on the gospel. They recognize, although they seem to have nothing, they possess everything. And we do too. We're not orphans and we're not paupers, hey? The world is ours. Do you know that? 
it blessed my heart to think about that. And we're going to close with them verses maybe. In, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to close there today in just a few minutes here. But the world is ours. Everything is ours. It's at our disposal. That's what I'm trying to say. The positions of the church in the world, that's what we're talking about today. The church is in the world, and because it's in the world, there's going to be mistreatment. That's a position of the church in the world, and because the church is in the world, the church is going to come across as militant, or it is militant. It's contrary to the world system. And one more. It's in a minority. The church is in a minority. That's the position of the church in the world. It was then, it is now, the church is in a minority. If you added up all the people around the world and you divided the church off from there, you're going to have a minority of people. It's just a fact. We're in a minority. Verse 40, They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is the church as represented by these believers at Philippi, and it was in the minority. A single home, a single home in a prominent city. Single home. That's it. That's the church in a prominent city. Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. That ought to encourage our souls today. If you are in Christ, it ought to encourage you that you are few find it. Well, why few? Because the message itself is militant. The call was, come over here and help us. Help us with what? A building project? A revitalization of the city? No. With the gospel. And what's the gospel? You're a sinner. You need a savior. I'm a sinner too. I needed a savior. Someone had to die in my place because guess what? I don't have anything to pay for my sin. I'm bankrupt before a holy God. The nations are as dust on the scales before him. What am I? Less than dust. Less than dust. I don't have anything to offer him. My sin condemns me before him. Your sin condemns you before him. That's not a sunshine and lollipops message, is it? That's, that's not a social club message, is it? A social institution message. A social institution, you could get the majority to gain... To, to, to gather to a social institution, couldn't you? To flock to that. If you put a sign out here that said free donuts, we'd need to get a new building pretty soon, right? But we're in a minority because the message is militant. It flies in the face of man's pride, which is sin too. I can save myself. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I got some problems, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, you're comparing yourself to that guy. The comparison is God. And he is absolutely 100% pure and holy and just. He has to judge sin. And he judged our sin on the cross. 
In Christ, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And how does that happen? Through faith in Jesus. Well, that's a militant message. And so the church is a minority. This huge, prominent city, one house, one house. It's not going to stay just one house. This church is going to grow, but it's going to remain the minority. still is today. Be encouraged. Think We're not that different from the first century church. These things are true. There is persecution. There is mistreatment. We are to be militant. We are to be a city set on a hill, and we're going to be in the minority. Here in verse 40, even though they're a minority, they are recognizable people. They are members of a local body, recognizable to one another. Lydia could say, hey, I don't know, let's say the jailer's name is Fred. That doesn't sound like a very good first century man's name, but Lydia could say to Fred, Fred, it's good to see you today. And Fred's little guy and his wife, and it would, it would be like they know each other. They're members of one body. And later when Paul writes to the Philippians, he's going to mention people by name. Tell you, Yodia and Syncathy to get along with one another, he says. What a position we have in the world today. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are the light of the world. To the world, the church is maligned because it deserves it, maybe. It's militant. The church seems militant because it's misguided. Oh, you misguided Christians. To the world, the church is in the minority because it is unimportant. But to the Lord, it's maligned because those who malign the church are rejecting their true king. That's why. When when the Lord says to Samuel, you give him a king, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. We are maligned and we are mistreated, not because we are being rejected, but because they are rejecting, they are rejecting our king and their true king. And from God's perspective, the church is militant because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ exposes sin and it speaks of righteousness and judgment and people don't want to hear that. And from God's perspective, the church is in minority because narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. 1 Corinthians, if you turn there, we'll close in these verses. 1 Corinthians 3. If you were to ask, answer the question, what is the position of the church in the world today, I would want you to leave this place saying we are in a glorious position. We are in a glorious position, even though mistreated, even though in a minority, and even though our message seems militant, we are in a glorious position. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21 Now, Paul has to write some things to the Corinthians because they are a bit of a messed up church and there's competition there with regard to various things. And one of the competitions is, I follow this guy and I follow that guy and I follow that guy. I follow Paul. I follow Paulos. I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Jesus. I don't know about this one-upmanship. Look what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 21. 
21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ. You might say it this way, all things belong to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. All things are ours to use to be the city that is set on a hill, not to use for, to, to gain for our own personal advantage. But all things are ours to be this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. All things are ours to be that. That's what we see Paul and Silas doing. They're not going to let us go. We're Roman citizens. Their focus is gospel focused. Their focus is focused on Jesus. It's focused on the church. All things are ours for those purposes, for God's purposes. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the fact that the first century church is not that much different than the church today. That our position as the church in the world is unchanged. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name.